0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Declan Black. I'm the current managing partner of Mason, Hayes & Curran. I'm delighted to be chairing today's event. And it's our regulatory, traditional two-hour regulatory session required for all lawyers for their CPD, but also good to know. We have four topics to cover. So we're going to be joined by four MHC partners dealing with each of the topics and the first topic we'll deal with is fraud particularly types of sophisticated cyber fraud and it's not really just cyber fraud because it's now a blend of personal impersonation and the use of, of cyber to perpetrate frauds and my partner Jared Connolly, is going to i suppose dispense his wisdom and experience in relation to those issues and then i'll be joined by my partner colin monahan who will talk about uh, privilege. And after that, we'll switch up the seats and I'll be joined by my partner, Darrow Shea, who will address sanctions. And last but not least, my partner, Catherine Allen, who will talk about conflicts. So we'll do it that way. And after we go through the first two um, interviewees, we'll take a break for audience Q&A, then on the topic of fraud and privilege. And then when Dara and Catherine are done, we'll do audience Q&A uh, on um, the other topics. So, jer you're first. So tell me, you're an employment lawyer. So how are you now involved in dealing uh, with fraud? And what are you seeing uh, from clients increasingly over the last 12 months?
1: Yeah, thanks, Declan. Um, correct. I'm, I'm mostly, in, I am an employment lawyer and... I would mostly be dealing with the employment aspects, such as the disciplining of employees or the investigation of how the issue has arose. But this area is very much an area that spans a number of departments. I would commonly work with people in the insurance department, in the banking department, in the litigation department to see can money be recovered, either from directly from a bank or from an ins- uh, under an insurance policy. So there's a multifaceted area in relation to myself. We've seen, I think, the concept of the savvy fraudster, you might, uh, which is commonly known as uh, fraudsters, who are very targeted and target not only the client, but the service providers and the professional services companies that they use. I think long are the da- gone are the days where you will receive an unsolicited email saying that you've inherited lots of money and if you give over your bank account, you, you, you'll, you'll get uh, the windfall.
0: So, can you give us some examples then of the more sophisticated frauds you're seeing?
1: I'm going to give two two examples, one of which I have advised upon and one which has been reported in the Law Society uh, annual report in 2019. Um, In the first one, it is very clear that the fraudsters had targeted individuals within the company and it's more than likely they had read the annual reports and had searched the internet for various details about the company. And to explain, you know, at a very high level in that, the Irish Managing Director received an email which purported to be from his former colleague in in the UK who had recently retired. Um, Nothing unusual in that part, but it's interesting that the names were already familiar. So when it wasn't a random name, it was the name of the former Managing Director who was retained as a consultant. He was asked in the email whether he would help. Finance a transaction, and it was well known within the company that they're on a, a very aggressive, acquisi- uh, very aggressive uh, acquisition trail. So, the so there two, was nothing, the email, nothing unusual. Email, nothing would,
0: that would arouse suspicion. Correct.
1: And then where 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 it got very unusual is that he informed the managing director that he would be contacted by the head of corporate of a large UK accountancy firm. And when you Google or you put the person in LinkedIn, the email purported to come from. The UK accountancy firm but it's only and it's hindsight's a great thing because you can look at the emails the email address was com rather dot dot co UK and he was ultimately told that he would get a non-disclosure agreement from that UK accountancy firm which duly arrived and which he duly signed he had no experience on non-disclosure agreements so he signed it and he felt that he could never disclose to other people within the organization the correspondent that's that, that, that ultimately transpired between the parties
0: so U- the way the fraudsters got him to buy into it was actually by sending him a non-disclosure agreement Co- and that made him comfortable and also he kept it to himself
1: correct and ultimately 1.6 million has left that organization under four separate transactions and when the when the accounts department did have concerns he was quite strong in that the non-disclosure agreement made it diff- difficult for him to disclose um, the, the details of it so what do we take out of it we take out of it that it's very targeted it's uh, very clever um it's um when you when you see the emails yourself you look at them and say that is f- clever while basic research was done by the individuals such as googling and such as um the granular detail of actually looking at what sort of email addresses were used or not. And I suppose the clever thing in this one was that the non-disclosure agreement did ultimately become his safety comfort, safety umbrella, which ultimately proved uh, his, his downfall. His
0: false safety His, his false
1: yeah. safety umbrella.
0: So, so what happened then when the uh, fraud was eventually discovered, or how was it discovered?
1: Ultimately, it was uh, the, the company's bank account ran extremely low, and it didn't have the funding um, to, to keep transferring the, the money. Um, and it was spotted by um, the, the it was spotted told by audience. an internal by uh, by a, a, a very junior person in accounts spotted. But at that stage, the one point six million had been transferred, um, and it's, it, it's it's now never going to be to be recovered. What happens then? And this is why it's important for the in house audience is that lots of pressure goes on to in house people to be if you want to call it give the direction that the company wants. And you end up having to do a number, or make a number of very key decisions extremely quickly. Firstly, you go to the guards, there is the, the fraud squad, um, and they will, they, will, they will step in very quickly. You have to go to your banks and see can you freeze your accounts and see can you freeze the account and seek to freeze an account in another jurisdiction. This is outside the EU, so we had have to, have to seek to stop the money being transferred elsewhere. Yes. Um, you, and this is the chasing that this, goes this on is when the you're chasing to recover and ultimately what happened is you then make a very difficult decision of how do you do on an employment point of view and where ultimately I, I i gave advice is that how do you investigate what has happened do you suspend employees and effectively how is you stress test the system to see was it a systems failure or was it just simply and sometimes it was just naivety within within the organisation itself.
0: And I suppose the question must also arise: Is was there an insider?
1: Was and that's always the first thing is that people look at the um, is is there an insider? And generally, next the cases I have been involved in, the answer is no. What there has been is perhaps internal policies that have not been followed, or a laziness associated with the policies. And what I mean by that, it, the fraudsters are aware that most internal systems would have a two-stage two, two approval. Either one person loads it onto the system, the next person approves it. Um, sometimes there's, what's frequently done in loads of, 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 of business, there's a callback in these situations. But you're assuming you're calling the right number. Um, And and in the second case that was reported in the Law Society, where 98,000 euros was ultimately defrauded, is that the callback actually happened, in that the solicitor did call the account and say, is that the right account? But he was calling the fraudster. And someplace along the lines, the bank account details got changed from a Bank of Ireland account to an Ulster Bank account. And it was reported, and we're not privy to the full detail, that someone inadvertently hit a link and allowed the fraudster sit in the system and gather the data from it. So what I think we're seeing extremely sophisticated fraud as opposed to, you know, just simple perishing. And,
0: and just going back to the, the sort of recovery mode, right, mm-hmm. as, as the crisis hits uh, in-house counsel. So what should be done then in relation to insurers? So many, many companies have fraud policies.
1: and. The fraud policy may or may not cover the situation, but there's a number of lessons we can take out of it in that the ba- a bank is well within its rights to say, it is not the banking system that has failed. It is the internal procedure has failed. The wrong account was inputted. Now there has been cases where a bank has ultimately been held liable, but it's 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 very few and far between because it depends on the type of bank account that, that's been used, And the the transactions that go through the accounts but fraud policies are not the answer they're not a a, a blanket that you will ultimately recover in three of the transactions that we have advised upon this year it is very unlikely that the fraud policy will cover it because they and they they believe that it's one of these exclusions that there has been no fault on the bank system
0: okay um, but presumably, it's prudent just to notify insurers. It's well, one of the things that you, you
1: need to know. Do. The, the the first thing uh, uh, guards first, so you can get your money second, and then notify your insurers. And when I say in that order, they're all a series of phone calls within the first hour of of identifying when you have what is what you know what can be large scale foot fraud. Okay.
0: And just moving to the second example, which was a, a targeted solicitors firm. Mm. I mean, I think. People are aware of um, messages coming into solicitors firms or coming into lawyers more generally, purporting to ask the lawyers to do something. But is there also an issue of clients receiving messages that purport to be from law firms?
1: Absolutely, Um, and you will see this now on a huge amount of law firms' websites where they try to, you know, when you log on to the website to say, you know you will never be asked for client you know client account details from your law firms and there has been cases in the UK where large sums of money where the client ultimately believes it's contacting with their law firm and again it goes back to the level of detail that the fraudsters are prepared to commit to in that it is more often or not they are accurate that it is actually your law firm Um, and again it's probably the power of the internet has good things and bad things but by virtue of just simply um, googling reading these reports you can get gather so much information um, such as you know at the end of all annual reports you will see who the accountants is the legal advisors and you'll even see who the banker is um, and you can then construct an email which uh, can be a, a very thoughtful or thought out email that will um, i suppose will make you read the email as opposed to just simply delete it and if you're, one of the things that we've, that I have seen in these transactions is, there has been an overuse of iPhones. And when you look at your iPhone, you read your emails, it never, never shows you the full address. It just shows you Declan Black, it will show you Gerard Connolly. And therefore, I think what happens is, when you're very busy, you're happier to hit forward and reply, and you can, and it's usually that first email that has the snowball effect, and you can trace back, if you want to call it, the point of entry of the transaction um, from a start and it's usually someone that has rushed or hasn't given it due consideration
0: and in terms then of I suppose the outcomes from from these type of transactions Mm. are they all dismal from the client's perspective In that there tends to be no recovery of funds no insurance and a blight on some people's careers well I think
1: okay sometimes sometimes the transaction is stopped early and sometimes there is recovery from both a bank and under the insurance policy but more often than not the money can be lost and it creates an immediate pressure point again in that in one case that we have been involved in the fraud occurred where the client thought it was paying its main main provider it obviously paid fraudster but the provider wanted its money straight away so in that situation you've lost money to a fraudster but you also have a supplier um, it is a blight on people's career and it depends on um it depends on uh, you know i suppose the level of naivety but also the failure of the systems i think most internal systems are very detailed Sometimes they just simply get skipped because they become over familiar So we become over familiar with the two the two stage, you know processing of payments the call back Maybe it doesn't happen each and every occasion because we pay this provider every month. So we become slightly sl- sloppy, but ultimately in the majority of cases that I have been involved in the employees associated with the fraud as in the, in, the internal employees they usually either are dismissed following a, an investigation or some of them simply resign because trust and confidence particularly in your accountancy division or even if you're at a senior level it is very difficult to repair when large sums have have left the organization
0: and if you look at i suppose prevention now most large clients for example before they engage external providers will you know require Detailed checklists to be completed in relation to what are your processes, and are you doing, um, you know, callbacks? Uh, what is your sign-off protocols? Uh, what uh, training do you uh, do? And 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 suppliers complete these. Uh, and I'm not sure what happens to them after they're completed. But have you any sort of, I, I suppose, advice to highlight the management or the adequate management of of the risks or is it really just boiled down to be vigilant if it looks unusual it is unusual
1: i I think that's look if it looks unusual it is unusual you know fraud is growing at an alarming rate and as you know some of these frauds even when you know what the end result is and you're looking back of how it happened it is extremely clever it is and, and maybe speaking for myself um we don't have the technical expertise of how it sometimes works and that's why as part of these investigations um again for in-house counsel they end up engaging with forensic uh you know individuals about how technically this happens but i think the there can be policies and training but policies and training need to be implemented and in the cases that we have been involved in there there actually even was half-day tradings and webinars done on, on this sort of fraud. And they even had, you know, live examples. So there is an example, but you can't, pilot error is a, simple, is a simple fact of life. And I think what we have sometimes seen in the organization is that the fraud is targeted at a senior level it's very senior
0: people tend to be the least compliant i think sometimes or
1: senior people believe that there is a safety net that the accounts is going to your accounts department is ultimately going to spot it and in a lot of these a lot of these uh, transactions or a lot of these cases we have found that actually it's the senior person who gets i suppose duped but then becomes the driver. It's the person who's insisting- they override the They invoice. override and say, this has to be done. And of course, if you're a junior employee in the accounts department and you are loading these, these payments onto the system, uh, ultimately, um, you're, you're, we, we've seen this where, and, and part of the investigations where uh, the junior employees express that they're sometimes reluctant to bring it up. So I think policies are all very well, but I suppose if there was a more kind of open culture of speaking out, are are flagging up the concerns maybe maybe it would stop it but obviously it is at a level now that it's um that it's more i said it's more targeted and it's more difficult to spot okay
0: thank you very much chair um we're going to change topics now and um we're going to look at legal privilege and as a litigator i have to say uh every now and again there's a tiny, tiny twinge of sadistic delight when the external litigator starts talking about the risks of losing privilege uh, to the in-house client. And the subtext, I think, is no matter what this dispute is about, no matter how the facts may unfold, if someone loses, if someone loses privilege, that's likely to land pretty heavily on in-house counsel for not managing information security. Um, course it's not really a sadistic pleasure but it is of course the risk that lands uh, heavily uh, on in-house counsel so how best to manage it and that's what Colin is going to chat to us about so welcome Colin
2: thanks Declan no that's absolutely right what most people and particularly in-house counsel are focused on is what do I do if I waive privilege or how do I waive privilege or how do I best maintain privilege but I suppose before we get into the topic of waiver of privilege we should probably give a quick rundown on what privilege is and how it arises in Ireland so I, I'll okay, run yeah, through those through and then at the end I'll come to the point in relation to waiver and how best to manage it so what is privilege privilege is the rule of evidence in Ireland that entitles a party to refuse to share communications with a third party including the other side in legal proceedings or a court in certain circumstances most people will be familiar with privilege because it comes up most often in the context of discovery in court proceedings so people will be familiar with the fact when you're making discovery you have to swear an affidavit of discovery and you list the documents that are relevant to the categories that have been asked for in the schedules. First schedule, first part is the stuff that's not privileged. First schedule, second part is the stuff that's privileged and the other side can then interrogate that and a court can interrogate that and you have to be able to stand over it.
0: So you have to say that you have it, you just don't have to give it over.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly so it's not a get out of jail card in terms of not being able to fess up to the fact that you have it you have to list it and you have to give information as to why you say it is privileged and indeed the
0: other side can sometimes infer things from
2: the mere existence of exactly and quite often these end up in motions before the court where where the other side says well i'm not satisfied with your explanation as to why that document is privileged and sometimes that goes off to a separate judge who looks at the documents documents and makes determinations around the privilege point i suppose it's important to say For a document to be privileged it has to be confidential so confidentiality is the entire bedrock of privilege you must keep documents confidential within your own organization and you know if it goes outside your organization or to a completely unconnected third party that usually waives privilege
0: you don't always have to say on every document it's confidential for it to be confidential i mean i suppose that's good practice but it's not a the sine qua non no exactly a
2: court will look at it and decide okay is this confidential okay has it been kept confidential but we would recommend that on most documents you would mark them, and use fairly simple wording, privileged and confidential. Okay. So that captures the various types of privilege and confidentiality as well.
0: And while putting a sticker on it isn't determinative, it's certainly going to help.
2: It's certainly helpful, and it demonstrates that it was in your mind at the time whenever the document was created. Okay. So it's better if that sticker can be put on by the author of the document. Okay. Okay, so turning to the types of privilege in Ireland, the first type uh, that exists is legal advice privilege. So this covers confidential communications between a lawyer and their client for the dominant purpose of seeking or giving legal advice. So, for instance, in Mason Hayes and Curran, this will cover most of what our commercial or corporate or property departments do on a daily basis, they give legal advice. Um, It's not unlike litigation privilege, it's not dependent on the existence of any potential litigation. So it's
0: completely, it's it's ordinary legal advice, which may be standalone advice on a commercial
2: contract. Exactly.
0: But, I mean, that never comes up to hand over to the other side, well, I suppose, unless there's litigation.
2: Exactly. So in circumstances where you have litigation, then all of a sudden there's a discovery category asked for, and the legal advice that has been provided by the lawyers is captured by the discovery category. So you have to consider that in the context of, does this have to be given over? And if not, then it's going to have to be list- listed in your first stage or second party. Okay, so
0: then even while uh, the existence of a dispute is completely absent from everybody's mind, at the time the legal advice on the contract is given, prudent approach would be clearly categorize your advice as confidential and privileged. And then if you do have to start looking back in the context of litigation, at least you've got a nice clean starting point.
2: Exactly, and I suppose, What I would say is be careful in relation to what you do with that legal advice, so don't spread it too widely within your own organisation and don't generally spread it outside your organisation. So I suppose importantly for in-house lawyers as well, this is a question that we're often asked, lawyers for the purpose of legal advice privilege includes qualified solicitors and barristers and foreign equivalents. So when you're looking at foreign equivalents, you look at, well, do they have what the equivalent of what the Irish requirements are so in Ireland you have to have a practicing certificate and you look at what the, the the requirements in the particular country that they're from are and see do they satisfy them however it does not include trainees paralegals or legal executives unless you're supervised by a qualified lawyer so if you have other people working in your organization on stuff that relates to legal advice and you want to make sure they come under the cloak of privilege it's important to properly supervise them again uh, This often happens communications given on a friendly basis so not in a professional capacity or where you know an actual engagement has been set up so Mm. for people ring you up looking for you know ring up your friendly lawyer your lawyer who's a friend looking for a piece of free legal advice that may not be covered by privilege because the, the circumstances aren't there.
0: But hey, but in-house counsel are constantly called by people in the business saying, can you just give me a quick steer on this?
2: Yeah, no, well, I think that's fine because as regards in-house counsel, the formal relationship is there because they're working in the organisation and the point of their employment with the organisation is to give the legal advice. I see. So that wrapper extends to those quick steer conversations or quick steer emails. Exactly. It's more so if you... Have a lawyer friend who you, know, you just ring up and you, know, you, you haven't set up the formal lawyer-client relationship. So beware of friendly lawyers. Exactly. Um, so again, one point, the, the communication for it to be privileged has to be for the purposes of, of giving or receiving legal advice. So again, with a lot of our in-house lawyer clients, Sometimes the house lawyers involve themselves in business decisions or the running of the business. Uh, and it's, it can be difficult to decide, okay, what was the giving of legal advice and what was the decision relating to the running of the business? But if you don't fall on the side of legal advice, then you know that those particular communications may not be covered by privilege. Again, one other thing that we have to pay attention to when we're making discovery, there, there is a distinction in Ireland. So not everything that a lawyer does. So your outside counsel, there's a distinction between legal advice and legal assistance so not everything that your outside counsel does will be covered by privilege and examples given are stuff like administrative matters or routine filings with the company's registration office and stuff like that
0: Okay, so is registering a title in the PRA that's legal assistance? Legal assistance,
2: exactly. Okay, Again, it can be difficult to decide where the line is drawn, and so on. And the problem with it is you have to then get into the outside counsel's files whenever you're making the discovery, mm-hmm. whenever you're preparing your discovery, uh, which which can be difficult to do. And,
0: and does that as distinction apply to in-house counsel as well? So. They uh, the distinction between prov- giving legal advice and
2: simply providing legal assistance. It does, yeah, okay. it does. And that's something you know people think okay, again. Okay, well this is, this is an in house law, We're covered because you know we're going to be under the umbrella of privilege. That's not always the case, and people should drill into what exactly they're doing and whether it will be covered by privilege. Okay, um, I suppose important. Unlike litigation privilege, which I'm about to come on to, legal advice privilege is enduring in nature. So uh, once it's, privileged, it's all privilege, it's always privilege okay
0: so litigation privilege
2: litigation privilege okay uh, it's the second main type of privilege that exists in Ireland it applies to communications between a client and a lawyer where the dominant purpose is to prepare for actual or reasonably ha- apprehended litigation and the rationale behind it is that you should be free to engage with your lawyers uh, in preparing for your litigation in a manner that means that you don't have to give that preparation or you know your thinking around how you're preparing for the litigation over to the other side or to a court and I suppose importantly, again, in terms of, lot of a lot of the work that I do, uh, the term litigation is wider than just court proceedings or proceedings before the high courts so it captures regulatory investigations and inquiries. So, again, investi- inquiries by the Data Protection Commission, uh, you know, tribunals of inquiry, a lot of the stuff of what the central bank does, you would come onto the cloak of litigation privilege very early on okay. whenever you start. Ra- it's start really where there's are a contest about facts and law, determined usually by an external body. Exactly, and I suppose one of the key factors is where that regulatory body has the ability to impose sanctions or make adverse findings, such as to impose fines or to, you know, Admonish or chastise. Exactly, make decisions that affect a person's good name. Um, One other thing as regards litigation privilege, and this can be quite difficult again to decide, well, what's out of the line you fall on, the dominant purpose of uh, why the document was prepared has to be the litigation or the regulatory inquiry. So, that you know, a, a document can have multiple purposes. Uh, and the famous case, and this is the case of Gallagher and Stanley uh, from 1998, where it was a difficult birth in one of the maternity hospitals, and the matron said straight away afterwards, "Well, you know I want everybody to write up their notes on that uh, for the midwives and the people who were assisting because you know there could be litigation out of that. so it clearly demonstrated that in her mind she anticipated proceedings
0: so these, uh, the argument was on the one side, these are just medical notes, they should be discovered, and on the other side. These aren't just medical notes. These are actually notes that were prepared thinking about the
2: litigation that was going to happen. Exactly, exactly. So they wrote did up the, the notes. Court well, they wrote up the notes. Uh, there was a claim brought and the notes were sought. The hospital claimed privilege over them and the court decided, yes, the litigation was one of the purposes because the matron had referenced it. However, it wasn't the dominant purpose, that the dominant purpose was the proper running of the hospital and keeping a proper record of what exactly had happened. Uh, so. It's a decision that I've always thought has been a little bit harsh, uh, you know, particularly given that the matron hadn't mentioned it at the time, but uh, it's, you know, it's... Well, that's it, speaking like a defense. Noise. Well, exactly, well, exactly. <laughs>
0: but, uh, so, but it does give rise to another interesting point, and that is that litigation privilege can be uh, enjoyed by a non-lawyer. So the, uh, the author of the contested document doesn't have to be a lawyer, yes. whereas for legal advice privilege, it's almost always a lawyer's creation that starts the ball rolling, if I can put it that way. Yes, exactly, and this
2: is it's for this reason that I much prefer litigation privilege to legal advice privilege because it is, it's much wider and it's an umbrella that sits down over everything. So quite often, whenever you're dealing with litigation before the courts or regulatory inquiries, you'd be engaging with third parties such as accountants Or experts and so on, and the litigation privilege would would capture all of the documentation and communications that they would prepare. Okay, and you mentioned legal advice
0: privilege lasts forever, but that's not true of litigation. No, no, exactly.
2: No, unlike legal advice privilege, litigation privilege does not extend beyond the conclusion of the particular matter. So, the particular proceedings that you're involved in, or the particular regulatory inquiry. So, it's very important when you're coming, for instance, to an end, to towards the end of an inquiry, or towards the end of a set of proceedings, to consider. Well, is because you can get lulled into a false sense of security uh, as regards privilege to consider well, is what I'm actually producing now still covered by privilege? I see. So, the,
0: my God, we did well to avoid that one kind of communication should be carefully exactly. thought through.
2: Exactly, okay. yeah. It, it, because it, it may need to be disclosed on a non privilege basis in some separate set of proceedings. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I think I've touched on this a little bit already. In terms of in-house counsel privilege, so legal professional privilege is generally accepted in Ireland to cover uh, in-house counsel in the same way as it would for outside counsel. Um, As I mentioned, where an in-house lawyer is operating a commercial role as opposed to a legal role, privilege will not apply. Now, there is one exception, which is the Axel Noble case, uh, where the Court of Justice ruled that privilege doesn't apply to what in-house counsel do in the context of competition investigations by the European Commission. Uh, So that, to my mind, was a bit of an attack on the common law rules of privilege by the European courts. Uh, uh, Now, it has been taken in Ireland to be limited limited to the confines of that particular case. Yes, exactly. But it is something that you need to be mindful of, that the privilege protection for in-house counsel may not be as strong before the European courts as it is for outside counsel. So again, to take steps such as you know, try to involve outside counsel as much as possible in communications so that you can seek to rely on that if you need to. That's not just to generate fees. No, perhaps, <laughs>
0: but it has that collateral. Exactly, effect.
2: although you, although yeah. th- that might be said. Um, again, I've touched on most of this privilege in regulatory investigations. So, in the case of Ahern versus Mahan, where uh, the notes of former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern were covered by privilege in relation to his interaction with the planning tribunal, and Quinn versus IBRC, again, another example where privilege was held to apply to interaction with the ODCE and the financial the office of the financial regulator um, again it shouldn't be automatically believed that privilege will apply it's more likely to apply where the investigation is adversarial as opposed to inquisitorial and where the regulator has the power to impose sanctions on the person or entity being investigated and again one other thing that comes up people think if you're a witness that's appearing before say one of these Commission's of inquiry well again I'm in the litigation's fear but Pre- if you're not yeah. the person being investigated so if you're just if a witness just okay
0: but your reputation can be trashed it can well. yeah, yeah yeah
2: well it's, well if you move from just a witness to uh, some, somebody who may be the subject of the inquiry yeah. then that changes things but if you're just a witness and it can Im- impact on the witnesses you may not uh, get privilege over what you're doing okay okay which brings us to the topic that we discussed at the top which is losing or waiving privilege so the privilege belongs to the client and not to the lawyer so really only the client can waive privilege privilege can be waived expressly or impliedly generally speaking disclosing privilege material to an unconnected third party waives privilege so as I mentioned at the start confidentiality is the bedrock of privilege so if a, a, a privileged document leaves your organization and spreads widely to unconnected third parties that generally waives the privilege
0: and what if you uh i suppose send a, uh, a document governed by privilege accidentally to somebody else
2: yes actually this is a point. and the courts have had a, an opportunity to look at that so what they what they've said in relation to inadvertent uh, disclosure of privileged documents is did the recipient realize that it was an inadvertent disclosure and if they didn't would a reasonable recipient have realized that it was an inadvertent disclosure okay so it's an uh, objective test. exactly yeah okay. and if a reasonable recipient would have realized that then that doesn't constitute a waiver uh, over the privilege but this has happened before where you know i received documents from the other side of proceedings totally accidentally uh, you know and i immediately realized there's no way that they could possibly have intended to send mm-hmm. these to me so the, the privilege was maintained in those circumstances um i suppose again come back to our points the labels that you put on documents are saying that you're not waiving privilege doesn't necessarily mean that the privilege is maintained but it, it will help it will help certainly yep yeah. deploying contents of privilege materials and pleadings obviously can lead to uh, the privilege being waived again if you have a privilege document that you give to a regulator in the context of an inquiry the disclosure of that privilege document to the regulator will generally mean that the privilege is waived
0: and just to sort of follow that through if you send one document uh, to a regulator you lose privilege over that document but if that document refers to a series of conversations or communications don't you really run the risk that
2: the whole exchange yes exactly so you have to give real thought and consideration as to whether or not you're going to give a privilege document over to a regulator. and yeah. some regulators look for it because they say well you're supposed to be able to demonstrate compliance with all of these various requirements and therefore show me the document that demonstrates this compliance and quite often in-house counsel or outside counsel will have fed into it and it will contain legal advice so That's something to, to be considered carefully. There is a route and again This is something that comes up quite often. I think it's known as a FIFE's agreement whereby you can share uh, privileged documents with regulators or certain entities on a very limited basis to say that the privilege is only waived as regards you you must agree that in advance and the confidentiality must be maintained as regards everybody else so And presumably you, and just for this particularly regulatory issue, not for more general regulatory issues. Well, you know, again, thought and care needs to be taken with that because, for instance, if you're sharing with the likes of the central bank, they have certain obligations and statutory gateways whereby they Mm. can give it to third parties. So, unless you really nail it down with the party that you're giving it to, uh, you know, it may. Be circulated more widely, you know, and they have to be circulated more widely and they're and therefore coming into the public domain. And then maybe just
0: for in-house counsel,
2: so uh, they have legal
0: advice that's covered by privilege or uh, information that's covered by litigation privilege. How comfortable can they be sharing that widely within their own organization and then then say beyond their organization to, for example, shareholders?
2: Yes, yeah, so, so what I always say in relation to sharing within your organisation, as long as in Ireland, as long as it doesn't go outside of your, your organisation, the argument that we will be putting forward is that that didn't constitute a waiver because it stayed it stayed confidential within the organisation. The situation is slightly more complicated in the UK because of the Three Rivers case, uh, which thankfully has yet to be followed, and I'm hoping will never be followed here. But basically, that has to be kept within a particular client unit that was tasked with getting the legal advice but we might not go down that particular road today if it it stays within your client organization it should be fine but what i always say is don't spread it too widely because that increases the risk that uh, it may be spread outside the organization in relation to some people such as shareholders or say for instance your auditors or accountants again they're outside your organization so normally that would constitute a waiver of the privilege that attaches to the document However, there are circumstances that the courts have recognised y- you will need to be able to share privileged material with, for instance, your auditors on a base, on the basis that doesn't waive the privilege that attached to it. So that's what's called common interest privilege. A lot of people think common interest privilege is a standalone uh, strand of privilege. It, it's not. It's really just an extension of either legal advice privilege or litigation privilege. But it means that in some circumstances, you can share the privileged material with, thir- with third parties without waiving the privilege. And is it
0: advisable in those circumstances to put some sort of short form agreement in place saying I'm giving you this subject to common interest privilege or you don't have to use that language. I'm giving you this but I am not waiving privilege. Is that? Uh, An
2: agreement like that I would consider to be the gold standard. It's not essential every time, but certainly if you have the time to put it in place and you think that the the third party will will be happy to agree to it, then put that agreement in place which specifically recognises the common interest uh, privilege. If you don't have the ability to do all of that, then I think in the a cover preamble, email, yes. yeah, in the cover email, say this has been this is privileged material that's been shared with you on a confidentially privilege basis and doesn't constitute a waiver of the privilege. Again, that'll be helpful to you down the line if there's a dispute about it. Okay. Okay. So just to recap, I've got some uh, just issues to be mindful of generally in relation to privilege and in relation to uh, waiving privilege. I've touched on most of these already, so I'll speed through them. So. Privilege is likely to be lost if advice is forward to an unconnected third party. Getting friendly advice from a lawyer without setting up a proper client relationship will mean that no privilege attaches to the communication. Getting legal advice from a third party who's not a qualified lawyer, and this happens quite often, (laughs) such as from experts or accountants and so on, again, no privilege will arise. What you label it as isn't determinative, so labeling something as privileged doesn't automatically mean that the communication will be privileged. One other point that uh, we'll, we'll come back to, Quite often, I notice with clients, if, if they've gotten advice from a lawyer, an Irish qualified lawyer or an, or an English qualified lawyer, they believe that, um, you know, it, it, it's the country that the lawyer is from that uh, will determine it. So different, different countries apply different privilege rules. So that's just something to be mindful of. I see. So if you're, if you're litigating before Ireland, uh, you know, the Irish rules will apply, but that's not always the case. And just to we'll
0: give we're sort of giving away the answer yeah. to the poll question, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, just to explore that, it's really the forum where the contest is
2: happening that's going to exactly. Determine. If you want to use a Latin term, it's the lex fori. Uh, the, the rules of the lex fori okay. that will will apply. So if you're before the Irish courts, it's and even if you're before the, the Irish courts on a, disp, a contractual dispute that, say, for instance, is governed by New York law yes the irish courts will still apply their own rules procedural rules in relation to matters such as privilege and ev- the giving of evidence because
0: and so u- ultimately privilege really is a subset of the law of evidence which is a
2: procedural matter. exactly okay. yeah so simply because you've gotten the advice from the likes of yourself if you think t- if you think that you're going to end up litigating say in germany or france or some of the other civil law jurisdictions that don't have privilege then that's something to be really mindful of in terms of what you do with your communications uh, and whether you'd be able to claim privilege over them
0: and just an, an, an adjacent question i suppose uh, people talk about without prejudice privilege maybe you just explain that
2: yes yeah, so without prejudice privilege it, it, it's not a form of legal professional privilege so without prejudice privilege is something that's recognized by the court whereby parties can interact with each other with a view to trying to reach a settlement of proceedings so uh you know you can engage And say okay look we're going to try to sort this out it's going to be covered by the cloak of without prejudice privilege and any offer that we make to you in the event that we don't ultimately reach a settlement can't be disclosed to the court or to any third party so it's certainly a useful means by which you can engage and it's the means by which mediations normally happen on a without prejudice basis and again you know if for instance some of those communications did have to be uh, listed as part of a discovery Exercise, then you would be able to claim a privilege over them now normally you wouldn't be that concerned about those because the other side will have will know about them and so on yeah. but certainly from, from the viewpoint of a court
0: but what I suppose sometimes arises is in without pre in discussions that are uh, suggested are badged as without prejudice representations of fact are made and it transpires that
2: they are not true yes exactly and the other thing that I see quite often is that um without prejudice privileges, people mark stuff without prejudice privilege and then think, okay, I'm free to say whatever I want. Yes. And in actual fact, there's no settlement offer in the communication at yes. all. It's really just, I'm gonna tell you what I really think. And that's something to be really careful yeah. of because we've had situations before where documents marked without prejudice have been deemed by the court not to be covered by without prejudice privilege yes. because there was no genuine attempt in the document to reach a settlement or to put forward a settlement proposal. Uh, And
0: after Dara, my partner (coughs) Catherine Allen uh, will talk about uh, conflicts of interest, uh, where they exist, how you should, uh, I suppose, approach them uh, as an in-house lawyer and engage with uh, external lawyers in in that context. So welcome, Dara and Catherine. Hi, Declan. Um, So Dara, we're going to start with you and I think... The one thing that we can say about the sanctions regime is that it is not straightforward.
3: That's correct. So, basically, 2022 has become the year when sanctions advice basically has become a, an expan- an exploding part of our practice. So, pre- prior to 2022 and the the imposition, the invasion by by Ukraine of Russia and the imposition of a lot of new measures and the expansion of existing measures by the eu in relation to russia and ukraine prior to that it wasn't really a big area of our practice but this year due to the expansion of the regime it has become an exploding area of the practice
0: well why don't you take us through the i suppose the framework of sanctions relating to the russia ukraine conflict uh, so that people understand I suppose the basic sources of the law hmm.
3: So the first thing we did when we started getting deluged with queries on this back in February was basically to To go to the sources go to the law and try to work out what the framework was Where were the sources of the law that we needed to be concerned about and to break it down and to set out the framework for ourselves so, so we have it
0: on screen now. Yeah,
3: so the first thing that we did was look to look at the international regime and to see how the different interlocking pieces from the different interlocking international sources worked and to work out basically which ones were most immediately relevant to us as you can see there we've set up the european union on top with the two main regulations and the reason there the eu is at the top is because that those those that's have, the sort of direct effects exactly yeah. the source of law that's most relevant to us on a day-to-day basis and in the second box there we've set out the two main regulations that are most pertinent to us day to day they're not the only ones that Form part of the EU's Russia-Ukraine sanctions regime, but they are the two that okay. we 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 interact with most regularly.
0: And then we have the Central Bank of Ireland. Its role is more implementing. Implementing. So
3: basically, under the, under
0: the EU regulations, the
3: the the EU member states, the, the implementation and enforcement is pushed down to the member states, and each member state is is mandated or directed by the regulations to appoint competent authorities. And those competent authorities shall set out the, infringe, the, the penalties for infringement, and those must be effective and dissuasive, basically. Okay. So the central bank, together with the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Enterprise Trade and Employment, are the competent authorities appointed for that purpose okay. in Ireland. Uh, for us, the central bank, as financial sanctions lawyers, is the, is the, is is the, the, the key most pertinent and relevant.
0: And then we have the UK, because we have so much trade with the UK, and this is a standalone Um, organization
3: yeah so in the UK we put the UK the US and to a lesser degree for us in terms of relevance the United Nations uh, down there as well in terms of the international framework and that's because most of the transactions that we do in the financial services or financial transactional space tend to be cross-border so we're always touching up against and nudging and overlapping with the other sanctions regimes so the next most pertinent for us tends to be the UK and in the UK thankfully uh, the the russia the russia ukraine sanctions regime was retained eu law so basically while it looks quite different it was retained via a, a uk statutory instrument and so while it looks quite different if you look at it in fact a lot of the substance is quite similar albeit not identical so there's a there are a lot of there are granularity at the granular level there are differences but like um we we we, we do recognize a lot of like the the, the methodology the exactly methods. And we, we can we can we can carry out kind of name checks on the offices. That's the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. That's the that's the implementing body in the UK. I see. And, and what we, about the US then? The US, we we, we we don't go near the substance of the US sanctions regulations. We will carry out for clients if they're asking uh, name checks because they've a very good search function. But in terms of the substance, stay away from the US sanctions. Don't 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 make any mistake around your ability to give a steer or whatever in relation to those. And well, if you want a derogation in the U.S., you need to get a, a big U.S. Specialist Washington counsel. firm. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so uh, stay away from them means don't advise if you're an Irish lawyer, but Correct. if you're an in-house lawyer, be aware of them. Be aware of them, and, and if you're an Extra territorial yeah.
3: reach. So where we're doing cross-border transactions, we, we're, we're constantly aware of all these sources and we do regularly use their search functions to see if any of the persons that are involved in our transactions are on the list okay. Yeah.
0: so let's have a deeper dive into the European Union regulations so we put up
3: there so Once we once we'd kind of once we'd gotten a handle on what we thought were the international sources Then we, 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 we took it a step down and are a step nearer to us in terms of our day-to-day practice into the into the EU regulations and we 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 set about discovering for ourselves what the EU framework was in relation to Russia Ukraine and Belarusian sanctions and the two main sanctions that that are relevant to us Day-to-day are regulation 833 and regulation 269 regulation 833 or 269 is the asset-free sanction And you'll hear a lot about people being having their names on lists and that's the sanction Basic and people having their assets or yachts frozen. That's this sanction principally that that's in play regulation 833 relates to trading goods and services and it puts a lot of restrictions and prohibitions around doing certain things, sending, exporting to Russia, importing from Russia, providing financial services to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So, so
0: 269 is, is grabbing stuff and 833 stuff. is preventing trade. Correct, exactly, I see. yeah. And, 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 and when they us, talk about packages of sanctions in the world i think the seventh package maybe the eighth
3: package eighth
0: package, yeah. eighth package are they implemented by new regulations or amendments to these primary regulations usually
3: amendments to these primary regulations so basically there was there was one new regulation in 2022 which is regulation eu 2022 263 which dealt specifically with Donetsk, kerson and more latterly loshank and Z- zapareza and that's a ret- restriction on trades and goods and services, but most of the other implementing measures that you hear about, you hear about a new package. There are, they're 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 amending regulations that so expand these. So if you're
0: the lawyer, these are the be- these remain the bedrock. These remain the bedrock. okay. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of other uh, less commonly encountered mm. ones.
3: So we have. We have 208 there, which basically was an asset freeze in relation to prominent Ukrainians. And those are Ukrainians who made off with with um, with assets that are misappropriated assets belonging to the Ukrainian state. Uh, We have Regulation 692, which is restriction on trades and goods and services. And this one is the
0: one that goes back to the 2014 annexation of Crimea.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And actually, the other two 269 and 833 go back to 2014 as well. And then 2022 is the, the one we just discussed in relation to Donetsk etc and then we have 765 which goes all the way back to 2006 which relates to Belarus. Okay. Now in relation to the, the second or the, the first two 269 and 833 are three the ones we, we deal with most regularly and the other ones we tend to we, we
0: just don't come up in practice but you must be aware of them. Okay so let's move a little bit deeper so you can have a look at the regulation but What's the relevance of FAQs? I mean, there's FAQs for everything now. I mean, if you want to pay your bill on anything, you get Mm. a page of FAQs, but I think the FAQs in relation to sanctions have a little bit more impact.
3: So the FAQs are extremely important. So like if you take one takeaway from me today, it's basically don't attempt anything without the FAQs. If you want to understand the intent, the purpose, the implementation practicalities
0: of EU of EU, Russia, Ukraine sanctions, you need to be looking at the FAQs. And and this is because the FAQs are published by the Commission, and that is the implementation, uh, I suppose, disposition uh, of the various national bodies. Yeah,
3: so when we read the regulations, we have read a number of the regulations and taken one view on the basis of our legal analysis and our understanding of transaction or funds or asset flows. But if you read into the FAQs, you're reading into the mindset of the EU legislator and regulator and they're providing a lot of between-the-lines understanding and nuance as to how they really think about how these things should work in practice. If you only look at the regulations, you'll a find it very, very hard to implement because there isn't, a lot of, there isn't sufficient detail in them and you b will probably make a mistake or a misstep because if you don't understand what they're saying in the FAQs and you haven't read the FAQs, you're you're just you're you're just ditching a load of information that's like absolutely crucial okay. to your understanding of it.
0: I mean, what you'll be doing is relying on your legal interpretation without actually looking at the legal interpretation of the rule enforcer.
3: Correct. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So give us an example. There you have example uh,
3: two. So, yeah, so example two is a very interesting one, because it was one that we, we got quite excited when we saw, because we thought it would be really, really useful to us in terms of giving comfort to certain clients who wanted to receive loan repayments from, from Russian-sanctioned persons. And this, this, this example is, is one of the FAQs. It's one of the FAQs in relation to Regulation 269. And it basically says that if you're in a derivatives contract and you're a non-listed person, and you're in a derivatives contract with a listed person, are you entitled or are you permitted to receive collateral from that listed person in the event that they owe you or they should send you collateral
0: under the terms under of the, the, terms of the contract?
3: contract. And what it says is, yes, you are. And in fact, if you don't receive the, the collateral, you're in fact allowing them to retain something and they're, and allowing them to retain something is in fact giving them an economic resource, which is something that's prohibited by the regulation because they are a listed person.
0: And I suppose it's worth, when you look at it that way, in, in going back to what are sanctions. They're an instrument of foreign policy to try and compel countries to do things. Yes. Yeah. And therefore, the, the, the lens through which the enforcing bodies look at it is they think, well, who's benefiting? Is yeah. the yeah. sanctioned party benefiting yeah. or is a non-sanctioned party benefiting? Yeah. Is that yeah. really the...
3: It's that, probably not all of us. Well, it's definitely it's definitely a fundamental part of it So basically because if you look at regulation 269 and one of the one of the key things is don't give That person on the list any any funds or economic resources So they're basically saying don't give them any benefit. Don't don't flow benefit from you to them so Yeah, so like it is actually a very big part of it and if you look at regulation 833 which relates to the 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 financial services element it's all about in certain circumstances not providing them with specific services and specific which they could use which they could use
0: so it's It's, not really meant to be stopping them paying money back to you as a non-designated party but sometimes that can happen
3: sometimes that can happen and this is the issue with the FAQs too like we do have a client who has. A lot of Russian exposures, and was looking to unwind all those Russian exposures, and that was a very important
0: thing for them. Mm. And we might come to that detailed example mm. later, but maybe just keep going through the keep bedroom. going through
3: here. Yeah. So we thought this one, we thought this one was great because it basically it it clarified a very important point for us, which was that if you allow them to retain something that they should, that they would have otherwise given you, you're actually giving them a benefit yes. or
0: a resource or an economic benefit. So. and this is just a little picture of the key sanctions and what it looks like i think that's mr abramovich's name there as a listed person so the structure of the regulations it's really there's a prohibition on doing things for against listed entities and that are legal and natural persons so it's a really a list based system in the old way.
3: Yeah, so under the asset freezing regulation, which is 269, it's basically there's a very big list at, at the back and you'll hear about people having their names added to the list. And Annex 1 is where the list is and there are currently 1267 individuals on that list and 121 entities. We've included, I've included here Roman Abramovich's entry and that basically sets out the fact that he's the listed person, also sets out some, some Reasons, personal details yeah. and then also a reasoning as to why he has been added and the reason he's been added is because he is he has got a close relationship with Vladimir Putin and that allows him to extract benefits from the Russian state from the Russian state yeah.
0: okay all right let's have a look more deeply then so, okay so who must observe the sanctions
3: so the both 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 269 and 833 have specific clauses setting out who must, obey the, who must obey the sanctions. And basically, a key, key takeaway for anybody who's an EU person or an EU company or an EU national, essentially, is that you must obey the sanctions and you must obey them no matter where you are in the world. So basically, you can't, as an EU national or an EU incorporated entity, you can't avoid the sanctions basically by doing stuff in other parts of the world. You must behave while you're in other parts of the world as if you like
0: in compliance With the EU sanctions. So you can't use your Jakarta based subsidiary to evade EU sanctions. No Uh, But what if you're a US or if you're an Indonesian company, Uh, can you just ignore the European sanctions?
3: Well, if you're a US and an Indonesian company, and let's just say you're not you're not you're not part of an EU group If you're in a US or an EU or or sorry a Singaporean or a US company, then if you're doing anything in the EU basically you will have to obey the sanctions. I see, yes. so, so that then becomes a, a
0: territorial matter. It then if, becomes
3: a territorial okay. matter. So basically, the, the regulations are not really set up to be extraterritorial, but in effect, because of the way they affect EU nationals and EU incorporated persons, they they, they They're do
0: extraterritorial have, for those for persons. those persons, exactly.
3: I see, yeah. okay. Um, then we have Regulation 269, and what we've done here is we've just set out the main, the main provision, basically so that people can see what how the asset freeze works and how the asset freezes work. Yes. So basically what the asset freeze says is that if you have funds or economic resources are in your possession that belong to or, or are controlled by a, a, a person who's on the list, you must freeze them. And this is most most regularly, I suppose, and intuitively an issue for EU financial institutions who happen to, for instance, be the bank of choice of Mr. Abramovich, where he holds his, 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 his cash
0: yeah. deposits. But, but it would also apply to commercial entities which have liabilities to now listed persons. Yes. Okay. And then the derogations, of course, is really, I suppose, where it, it gets to the sharp end for, for practitioners because if they identify that a transaction is otherwise prohibited, mm-hmm. then the next step as well, how do we get it done?
3: yeah so basically the derogations are obviously very important, and you know we'll come to the specific example later, but we had one client who obviously wanted to be repaid existing loans so but who gives the derogation the competent the competent authority so basically in each eu member state, a competent authority has been appointed, and that competent authority is entrusted with giving a derogation in relation to which is a permission to do something that would have otherwise been prohibited by the sanctions.
0: And do they have, is there sort of forum shopping that goes on in relation to where do you seek the derogation or is it very clear always where you seek the derogation?
3: It's not always very clear. Um, So for instance, we have a client that has, you know, interactions in a number of different EU member states in relation to, in relation to the, in relation to something that they wanted a derogation on. they were not in any way minded to forum shop, but they were they were minded to find out whether or not the competent authorities in the different jurisdictions were were staffed up and ready to go. So there's a cons- resource,
0: there's actually a practical resource in question.
3: Practical resource. In some jurisdictions. Question. Yeah. And where they where they submitted their derogation request in the first instance, which was the the, the jurisdiction to which they were closest, it turned out that, that competent authority in that jurisdiction was not staffed up so, so then, it existed in name only it, ex- it was essentially a p.o box I now see. subsequently they did get staffed up but for a while it was it was
0: a matter of great concern for so the that client. that practical insight is something that needs to be explored
3: that, that that practical insight is something that needs to be explored and you need to take and understand what the what the competent authority set up in each member state level is in relation to where you're going to be seeking your derogations okay. let's move on so this th- what this is is basically if mr abramovich is on the list then basically it doesn't stop essentially with mr abramovich the the sanctions and the the acid freezing sanction will actually ex- you know reach down into any entities that he owns yeah. or that he controls
0: so so that's, uh, I mean, we're all familiar with the issues of own and control as it relates to shareholders uh, and and corporates. So um, is it it's very specifically identified or is it just analogous?
3: So basically in relation to ownership, it's that the test for that is reasonably straightforward. It's over 50% of a proprietary rights or shareholding generally. Um, and then in relation to control, the EU sets out kind of detailed criteria, which we'll just put up there. Which which is like a de facto analysis in relation to his in effect or its in effect control of the other entities, which which may or may not be 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 affected by him being on the list essentially, and in certain cases that's rebuttable, but generally speaking, if Mr. Abramovich, to use that name, owns or controls a company, then you must treat that company as if it is. In terms of your
0: freezing, sanctions, yeah, it's Mr. Bramfjord, exactly. And these uh, criteria, I mean, they seem to be fairly sort of grounded in rights. Does the person actually have the right? And um, what about soft power, or in say Irish company law terms, things like shadow directors, where it's just someone who, while they may not have the um, de jure power, the black letter power, it's just. As a matter of fact, they are the controlling influence.
3: If they are, as a matter of fact, the controlling influence and that is discoverable, um, then I think that would essentially control it and that would be giving me significant pause. And essentially, you know, because there are anti avoidance measures, there are anti avoidance measures, well. yeah. measures, and stepping somebody out into a, into, a, into a de facto but non de jure. Situation basically doesn't doesn't
0: doesn't. It raises income. red flags. Anyway, it definitely yeah. raises red flags. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, we, I love this slide okay. because <laughs> I think if any slide indicates the complexity of the sanctions regime, it's yeah. this one. Right. Uh, we won't go through it all, but maybe just tell us what it is, and people can look at it if it's their bag.
3: Okay. So I'd, I'd just like to to uh, to apologise to the viewers at home. <laughs> because the, the 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 writing is very small and I did get in trouble earlier on for for jamming so much text onto a slide it was probably a breach of people's human rights but what what why I have all this text here is basically to to illustrate how in regulation 833 which is the the restrictions on on trade and uh, trade in goods and services uh, regulation so article 5 is is the is the main regulation and is the main article in regulation 833 where the financial services prohibitions and restrictions are set out and as you can see there are all these different subarticles that basically iterate different financial services and different financial relationships that are in some ways prohibited or restricted by the overall regulation and if you're doing a financial transaction with a Russian person Then it's not just a bit like this is different to 269 where you have a whole load of names on the list if you're doing a a transaction with uh, this is what you do not
0: who you do it's all about
3: what you do so you need to break down your transaction and, and understand its different layers and elements and it's different interactions with the the Russian Nexus essentially and and to try to discover whether or not your your transaction is in fact prohibited or not so we have everything on there. It's it's on there at 5h, for instance. You can see Swift at 5f. You can see restrictions in relation to providing banknotes um, at 55. You can see that there's a listing restriction um, at 55aa. There are certain state-owned or controlled enterprises on whom there's an absolute transaction ban. Um, then there's also at five B restrictions in relation okay. to accepting deposits. So, so I won't go on because. Okay. I, <laughs>
0: but anyway, there's a lot to navigate. There's a lot to navigate, if you're looking basically. at a service, and the issue is what is the service you're providing, not to whom are you providing it.
3: The, the uh, like there's what and to whom. What and to whom both. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so.
0: Okay, we'll move past that slide then.
3: So what we have here in the next slide is the the anti-avoidance mechanism or the anti-avoidance provision regulation 269 and the anti-avoidance regulation in 833 and you can see that those are just really broadly worded and basically they're saying look you can't set out to do something that you that will have the aim or the intent or the objective of avoiding what's intended by the by the restrictions. Yes, so
0: So then I suppose the legal advice point uh, of that is that it's it's very important uh, I suppose when framing your approach to an issue that the objective is to comply with the regulations not to circumvent the regulations, right? Yes So so this is a little picture I suppose of what you what you have to do when you're actually doing some of the searches
3: yeah, so when we were when we were discussing the framework earlier on and how we like how we spent, you know, our initial task or objective was to break down the EU, the EU's regulatory framework to understand what regulations were, were relevant to us. Part of, part of what attended or went with that process was basically trying to work out, because the EU's websites are Byzantine and huge and extensive, was trying to understand which websites, where do, you go? Where do we go basically, yeah. what's, what's our entry point into yes. this. And that's and what so we can if someone our, finds so. themselves on this
0: page. They're in the right place
3: if somebody find and that's why we put it up There okay. and I also I owe a debt of I owe a debt of gratitude to our partner our pa- pa- Paul Egan as well in this regard because he, he he pointed us in the right direction on this So basically what we what we have put up here is basically uh, And this is for the viewers at home to take away is a link to the page which has the consolidated list setting out all the names, which are subject to the asset freeze sanctions. Okay. So basically if you follow the steps here, you go to this page and that's a link there at the top and you follow the steps, you scroll down. I see. This is, there's, there's, be... The arrows come up there basically. Yeah. So that's the consolidated list. And then if you click there, this will come up and you can download it on a PDF, which is the consolidated list of names. And you can if you check the functionality, just check the functionality, you can do a name search then on this to see I whether see. or not any of the people that are coming up on your transaction, who you suspect or have an apprehension, may have a, have a Russian nexus, are on the asset freeze uh, list.
0: Okay. Um, we might, I suppose, in conclusion, have a look at the example that you were going to give in relation to um, uh, a, a bank located in another EU member state
3: so yeah so we've a, we've a client that is a financial institution it's located in another member state it has a nexus with ireland so in the context of that nexus we've been providing them with advice for a number of years in relation to basically certain eu regulations to their treasury team essentially so they came to us earlier in the year and they said look we have a lot of russian exposures and we're looking to in a proper and Regulated and legal way unwind those exposures because in fact a lot of the the borrowers that we have in Russia have come to us to say Look, we're we 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 accept that our our commercial relationship is not tenable anymore and we're we're, go, we're, we're, we're gonna going be to repay
0: it. our obligations
3: yeah, and they, they they were they were concerned about that from their own ability to pay from Russia due to Russian capital controls and counter sanctions, and also in relation to the EU end of things as well. So they wanted to basically repay our client, and we set about trying to understand whether or not that was possible under the, the, the asset-freezing regulation, because...
0: And here, here you're suggesting that someone who's obliged to make a repayment to an EU domiciled entity wants to make an early repayment, mm. and you're saying that actually there were Concerns about that.
3: Yeah, so we 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 dealt with the question originally when it came in and we said that actually so they had their their borrower had been added to the asset freeze list so it was on 269 and They said well, can we get repaid? Can we accept the repayment from them into our EU based euro account and We said in the first instance we said we don't see any issue with that because once you receive the money into your account It'll be your money. It won't be their money anymore or it'll and be a debt from whatever the bank is correct. to it, you. It'll yeah, belong yeah, to that bank yeah, yeah. and you know, they'll owe you the money. In fact, the payer, which is the borrower, won't have any more rights in that money to that money yeah. and can't get that money back whatsoever. And in fact, if you allowed them to retain the money and to not accept the payment, you're giving them a benefit. You're yes. giving them an economic resource by not getting repaid. But Then when we started digging into the FAQs, we became decidedly uncomfortable with that analysis just on its own. And there were a number of FAQs, and if anybody is out there and wants to know the number of the FAQs, it's in relation to the asset freezing uh, uh, regulation. It's FAQ 12 and FAQ 19. Um, Those two FAQs basically gave us big pause because one of those FAQs basically says every asset that is going to or coming from the asset freeze target must be must be frozen so our concern was that by accepting the payment it would be a breach of sanctions our concern was that if we accepted the payment we'd at the very
0: least we'd have to freeze it or that the bank receiving it would freeze it and that it would sit in limbo and that it would sit in limbo so, so so the prudent course was to actually seek a derogation and then next question was well from whom
3: The prudent course was to accept, uh, was definitely to seek the derogation and that was because we wanted to stay on side with the regulators and not end up with our money frozen in the recipient bank. But we also wanted to make sure that because our client had a lot of contractual obligations on them in relation to complying with sanctions as well as the, the law of needing to, legal
0: obligation of needing to comply with sanctions, we didn't want to upset their universe. I see because <coughs> their own financing documents would have had contractual requirements to comply with sanctions, Correct. so not yeah. only are they exposed on the regulatory side, but they would be exposed perhaps on their own financing on side on their own
3: financing side, and in fact probably their own financing side was what gave them: a bigger risk a, big, yeah. a bigger risk yeah. of like immediate issues basically because yes. they, could, they could be running the, the issue of being in default under their funding instruments, which would have
0: a, you know a, a
3: massively Negative effect on them, okay.
0: and we're we're running short of time. So okay. the happy end to the story is the happy end to the story
3: is that they agreed that it was probably best in the context of the FAQs that we showed them, and we said we uh, that we shared with them and the analysis that we set out for them, um, that the best course of action, both from in terms of staying on side with the regulators in terms of not discommoding the bank that was going to receive the money and in terms of not upsetting their own contractual obligations from their in with their own funders was that they'd apply for a derogation they did apply for the derogation and they did eventually get the derogation and now they're in a position to be repaid
0: great well thank you very much dara Um, plenty of uh, food for thought there for everyone Uh, obviously you'll get all the slides so you can look at all those regulations uh at at your leisure. Um, But it is really a feature of uh, the war in Ukraine that lawyers now in the EU have to be much more mindful of the sanctions regime. I'm now joined by my partner, Catherine Allen, who is going to take the anchor leg of the relay um, and talk to us about uh, conflicts of interest. So welcome, Catherine.
4: Thanks very much, Declan.
0: So I suppose this is a very disarmingly simple question, but uh, if you're an in-house lawyer, what sort of questions should you be asking your external law firm to ensure that there's no
4: conflict of interest? Uh, funny you should ask that Declan, I happen to have a nice slide here to have a talk. I haven't gone to Dara's level of detail in my slides, so they're, they're a little bit lighter. So um, I suppose it's, it's always helpful to start, I think, with conflicts with, well, what are solicitors overriding uh, obligations? And. It's helpful to summarise them all. We all have an undivided duty of loyalty to our clients. I think there's a famous phrase that we have to act without fear or favour in respect of each client. And then we have two other um, obligations. We have a, a duty of full disclosure to each client, and we have a duty of confidentiality to each client. And you, we can quickly see how those two um, might come into conflict. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. There's also a fourth um, duty which is not to clients, but it's in fact to remember that we're officers of the court. And we have so the
0: overriding duty the overriding to the duty. fair administration of
4: justice. Absolutely, exactly. So if you think about conflicts um, for any length of time, you'll quickly realise that the issue arises around the, the question of full disclosure to each client. So uh, as a solicitor, you can't be in possession of any facts that you cannot disclose to your client but you also have a duty of confidentiality to each client. So if you are acting for two clients that are interested in the same area or working on the same project, for example, how can you respect both of those duties? And it may ultimately transpire that that you can't actually do so. So the the suggestions that um, I would put out there that you might ask your lawyers, your external lawyers, and I am going to talk a little bit later about in-house lawyers and the conflict issues that they need to think about. But the questions to ask your external lawyers are sort of the obvious ones like what systems and controls do you have in place to enable a conflict to be identified can the law if if a law firm identifies a conflict can the law firm continue to act or and and i suppose how how are you as in-house lawyer going to assess that response that your law firm gives you
0: And let's take a practical example here. So the law firm says, well, you know, we search our electronic systems and we uh, have a a protocol for an email communication, but let's imagine the systems and controls fail. Um, What what then? And the law firm says, "Oh, oh, well, actually, even though we did went through these processes, Um, Five months ago, we've now actually discovered through a chance conversation with my partner, Dara, that in fact we have a conflict of interest. Is there anything that can be done then as an in-house lawyer? Save, make a face and don't pay the bill?
4: Well, I think there's probably lots of things that can be done and I suppose we we might come back and talk about the the consequences of of acting uh, in breach of conflict of interest rules. I mean, wearing my professional regulatory lawyer hat, the one I would obviously think of is the misconduct. So you're open to a complaint to the law society as a starting point. There are also other things that you could be sued for breach of your fiduciary duty. You may have contractual obligations to the client in relation to disclosures of conflicts and so on. So, So, uh,
0: So I suppose actually there are huge incentives on the systems and controls to get this being right. very
4: robust absolutely okay. um, and also there are safeguards that can be used in in certain scenarios where conflicts do arise but again you do are need these to the assess information barriers exactly and we're going to talk about those in a little okay. while and while they're not all as fantastic as they're made out to be I was before we get on to that it is helpful just to take a step back for a moment and assess well what is a conflict of interest how do I know what I'm being told is there isn't a conflict of interest and the starting point for all of this is the Law Society's guide of, uh, to professional conduct for solicitors and there's lots of really helpful information in there and what the Law Society distinguishes between is two things client conflict and own interest conflict and I'm going to talk about what each of those are in a minute I just want to touch upon um, this term commercial conflicts as well. So a commercial conflict is not a conflict in the legal meaning of the term. And we're going to come back to what it, what it, even though the term is thrown around, what that actually is. So we'll come back to that. In a bit but this
0: minutes. really comes for if you're acting for Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola may not want you to act for Pepsi.
4: Precisely. And it, it, a lot of this comes down to information. What information do you have about particular clients? And that relates back to... the the duties we had on the first slide, the duty of confidentiality and the duty of full disclosure. So own conflict. um, So this is is the the Law Society's distinction, own conflict and client conflict. So an own conflict is where your duties as a solicitor would conflict with those of your client. And there's some examples given in the Law Society's guide. I've set them out on the slide there. Most of them are reasonably obvious. Um, Just to say, not all of these are outright prohibitions in some circumstances the law society's guide goes well look you can act here but you need to be really careful if you're going to act in it in these particular scenarios and some of them are outright prohibitions on acting in those particular scenarios
0: and I suppose one of the things that comes up perhaps from an in-house counsel perspective well both really is advice given um, by a lawyer who in fact intends uh, moving Either to the organisation that they're advising, or to the law firm, to the external law firm from an in-house role.
4: Mm-hmm. And again, it, it comes back to all of this piece about knowledge. I mean, knowledge is just simply not something we can put in a box and 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 carve off in our heads and not think about it anymore. Whether that's you know moving from one uh, one employer to another employer, or moving uh, to advise from advising one client to another client, and it all comes back to to in, or. Not all issues come back to that, but very many conflict issues do come back to that. The the client conflict then, and there's this succinct statement I suppose in the Law Society's Guide that really defines client conflicts and it says that if a solicitor acting with ordinary care would give different advice to different clients about the same matter, there is a conflict of interest and the solicitor should not act for both clients. it's important to note that the Law Society's guide does make a distinction between conveyancing and non-conveyancing matters, and this is an important distinction. Right? The, the, the rules
0: are much more rigid for conveyancing. Precisely. Precisely. I suppose because of historical experience.
4: Yes, and you'll you'll be interested to see that the date of the regulation which brought in the statutory pro- prohibition was two thousand and twelve. So we all know what was going on in the sort of. Um, as,
0: as transactions were being unwound precisely if that way. yes yeah.
4: exactly so that the basic prohibition is that you cannot act for a vendor and a purchaser in a conveyancing transaction there are limited exceptions they are set out in that regulation the reason it's important to flag it is because misconduct is defined in the legal services regulation act or as Acting in breach of the Solicitors Act or regulations made under the Solicitors Act That's one of the definitions of misconduct. There are other definitions SI 375 of 2012 is made under the Solicitors Act So if you breach SI that SI in 2012 It's more than likely going to end up being found to be misconduct with all of the consequences that has for your practicing certificate, your reputation and so on Um, There are, as I say, some limited exceptions to um, the conveyancing prohibition. Again, I'm not going to go through them in detail. They are set out in the Law Society's Guide. Some are outright prohibitions, some are act with care in this scenario um, examples. Moving on then to the non-conveyancing side of things, so there's no outright prohibition on non convincing transactions um, and enacting for more than one client in, in these types of transactions. What the Law Society's Guide requires is that the clients, uh, all of the clients involved, must give informed consent.
0: And just to pause there, give us an example of what informed consent truly is. I mean, what, what does the court regard? as informed consent as distinct from, well, is it okay if I act for X as well as Y?
4: I suppose um, the client must understand that there's a potential conflict. So there's always a bit of, if these issues arise, a bit of a, a, a dance around you know, disclosing to one client that you act for another client and all of those pieces. But once all of the clients know that there is this issue on the table, they then must know and understand, and this is what the Law Society's Guide said, that the solicitor may not be able to advise each client as fully as that solicitor would if that solicitor did not act for both parties. So that's kind of the key piece to the informed consent. again there's some specific advice in the law society's guide regarding certain uh, categories of client, and again they're set out on the screen
0: and clients with conflicting roles might that be you know a client who is Uh, say an executive in an organization but also a pension trustee or something
4: exactly that's precisely it and I mean we had it I think in one of the questions earlier on to Colin about identifying who your client is and so on this feeds into that as well it is very important to understand who your client is and what hat they're wearing in a particular context when you're giving them advice because if they're wearing two different hats you may well not be be able to give them advice in respect of both of those roles So I said I'd touch on commercial conflicts, and I should have conflicts here in inverted commas in the title to the slide, because they are not conflicts in the true sense of the word, in the sense meant by the Law Society's Guide. If they are conflicts in that sense, then you go back to the preceding slides and deal with it in that way. Commercial conflicts are essentially where you have a relationship issue, precisely what you uh, said earlier, Declan. This is you you act for Coca-Cola, and they say you can't act for Pepsi. if, and if, very
0: often these are now documented in service agreements absolutely. between law
4: firms and clients yeah absolutely and I suppose whether you want to um, um, and that's a matter
0: of commercial bargaining. It's a
4: matter of commercial bargaining and whatever, what each of the clients will accept in particular circumstances. I suppose I'd, I'd just um, flag the, the caution there is where where your law, firm, your external law firm might be trying to say, look, this is absolutely fine. There's no problem with us acting for both of these clients in this particular sector. It may well be fine. And indeed, that is very much how um, a, a lawyers build up expertise in particular areas. They they know the territory. They've worked in the area. They know all of the issues that are coming up for clients in that yeah. area. So it can be very important that the cl- that the lawyer can actually be a benefit. It can, it can to have actually that be a benefit.
0: Expertise, precisely.
4: But it's just to remember the knowledge is power piece. We can't put that confidential information that we have in our heads back in a box, um, and it's it's going to be very difficult to to carve that out. And are the clients comfortable with that? And I suppose.
0: So under most of these, um, I suppose, commercial arrangements that are in service level agreements, there's a requirement on the law firm's part to go back to uh, the client and say, well, this has now arisen and we think it should be okay to act or we don't have a view um but we'd like to understand your view what, what then should the in-house counsel ask about the issue
4: well, i suppose first they want to test that there isn't actually a conflict of yes. interest so that's the first point and then it comes back down to the, the commercial relationship piece are you comfortable with this client that has this knowledge of your internal affairs your internal workings and so on going ahead and acting in this other area in this other sphere for this other client Bearing in mind that, that they that are to have this information And that information doesn't damage your business. And that it doesn't damage your business, okay. yeah. And we do see that come up a little bit in the context of some of the case law on ethical and information barriers. So we'll come to those. So mind. a
0: good question is, what potential downside is there for us?
4: Yes, exactly. So, coming then finally to managing conflicts of interest. So, uh, you know, the first thing that will be normally be served up to you when you're told, um, as an in-house lawyer, look, we think there is a conflict of interest here, and if if the the law firm feels comfortable in acting, they may suggest. may suggest look let's use ethical or information barriers and they can work very well in certain circumstances i suppose all i wanted to point out i'm not we don't have time to go through the three cases i've listed there in detail but just to say they go as you can see they range from 1998 to 2014 and in all three cases the courts found that the ethical or information barriers that had been put into place by the firms concerned were not sufficient and did not sufficiently protect the client's interests. So they are not a magic bullet, they do not solve everyone's problems.
0: But uh, while they're the cases that I suppose get pushed to the test, Mm -hmm. very often it actually does work quite effectively.
4: Very often it can work very effectively. But the important thing is that they have to be effective information or ethical barriers. You can't just put some makeshift thing in place and cross your fingers and hope it will work and and similarly for in-house lawyers you really need to ask the questions of your external lawyers in relation to their information barriers what do they actually mean do they stand up to scrutiny and the difficulty in all of those cases was that the information barriers put in place did not stand up to scrutiny there wasn't a problem with information barriers in the first mm-hmm. place it was the fact that they simply weren't robust enough actually in the last case it was the it was not because they weren't robust enough but they but they hadn't been put in place in sufficient time early enough in the particular transaction to ensure that there was no crossover of or information no or no risk yeah
0: it's not even the actual crossover it's the, it's risk. the risk
4: precisely There's a couple of other ways of managing conflicts of interest some of them are things like limiting retainers So you're going to you're only going to advise on certain aspects of the transaction or issues And not on anything else that gives rise to the conflict You may also um, use independent advice on certain aspects of the transaction again They sort of have to be taken on a case-by-case basis as to whether they'll they'll work out so that's all I wanted to say really in terms of the 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 brief overview of the law of conflicts of interest
0: great okay well
4: thank you catherine thanks dara